Even the titles of the works we're going to hear take us back to a vanished age. Sequenza 4, Sequenza 9A. I can remember a time when I first started listening to contemporary music when I was in my teens, when just about every other truly new modern piece that emerged had to have a Latin or a Greek or a German title, followed by a number, usually, almost, I think, mandatorily in Roman numerals, things like Catharsis 13 or Durchfall 6.5 or something along those lines. Even the look of the scores if that's quite the word for them, of the pieces that we're hearing today, suggest the once hugely fashionable experimental modernism. Sequenza five that we're starting with today, you almost have to unravel rather than open, and some of the pieces that we're going to hear, as you'll see, require more than one music stand. Also, we've got examples of the kind of thing that used to be called graphic notation that you don't tend to see much of these days. All sorts of symbols and dots as well as notes, sometimes instead of notes, and copious written introductions explaining everything from the way to which way to point your instrument to what to think of while you're doing so. All very typical of the 1960s, and I'm sure some of you can imagine or think your way back to those times when people sat squatted or in lotus position in chairless auditoriums, away with all these bourgeois distractions, and breathed in the scent of joysticks. It was a time when it sometimes seemed that a lot of music had been composed, if that was quite the word, with the aid of a little of what Frank Zappa used to call trendy chemical amusement aid. This sort of thing. Reminds me of my last visit to the doctor, actually, listening to that. But that was called pendulum music, and it was four people swinging microphones like pendulums in front of loudspeakers. The idea being that the feedback you get between the speakers creates a kind of beat, which it truly did. Would you believe that the composer of that was Steve Reich, who has gone on to very different things? But maybe in things like that, you can see him beginning to find his way to the style which he's created, which is so distinctive and so popular today, and so very different. Well, an awful lot of what at the time was being hailed of the music of the future has vanished, and only a pale ghost of that kind of experimentalism survives in today's new music. But the pieces in today's programme have survived. They're still played all over the world, and there have been recent recordings. Why? And that is, as it turns out, rather a germane word when we come to our first sequenza. But to help us answer that today, we have our trombonist, Byron Fulcher. Please give him a round of applause. So I wonder what it is that has made this music by Luciano Berio survive when thousands of pieces that sound more or less like it haven't. Thank <laughs> you. 
Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Byron. Well, there are quite a few things you probably noticed there that are not in certainly an orchestral trombonist line of duty. There are quite a few things he asks Byron to do there, which were certainly very new indeed in the 1960s when that music appeared. You probably noticed at one point that Byron was actually singing into his instrument. Simply singing down the instrument sounds like that. I'm required to only simply sing down the instrument on the last note where I alternate between playing and singing. Most of the time, Berio asks for singing and playing together, multiphonics. So if you think you hear chords on a trombone, your ears aren't deceiving you, it really is happening. We also have those fabulous flying staccatos that you did a moment or two ago. Could you re-demonstrate those? It's a fantastic noise. And a, a slightly more familiar effect, I think, certainly from the beginning of the 20th century, flutter tongue, where you actually roll your tongue when you play the note. Gorgeous effect. And at one point, Berio asks for, yes, I think in the score, he says, a breathy sound. What does he want there, Byron? Gives a demonstration of that. I see. Also, several points in the score, he actually asks for Byron to vocalise specific vowel sounds. Can you give us an example of that? But for all these wonderful effects, Berio always said that he didn't want to do what many composers seem to be doing in the 1960s and write against the instruments in his sequences. He always insisted that he respected the trombone's history and its instrumental pedigree. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why these works have survived, and despite their seemingly modernist language, there's no detachment from the musical history, from the development of the instruments up to this point. Berio himself said that a musical instrument is in itself a piece of the musical language, and that he preferred a slow and dignified transformation in terms of the instrument's inherent capabilities. That's evolution, not reinvention. Well, I wonder if the words slow and dignified transformation came to you during some of the sounds we've just heard. But this is still an important point, I think, Byron. Do you feel in this piece that Berio is writing against the instrument or basically for it? Is he on your side as a player? Well, I've completely come around on this question because as a fairly classical trombonist, when I first look at this piece, it looks ludicrously impossible and very difficult techniques. But as I got into it, you realise actually it's all very well written for the trombone. In fact, I think it's a bit of a masterpiece, but I think you possibly only really appreciate that as a trombonist trying to achieve it. It's a chicken and egg question that occurs to me whether trombone technique has evolved due to Berio writing this piece is involved in a certain direction or whether these techniques existed 
very widely before this piece was written. He was influenced by a couple of avant-garde trombones at the time, but I think this is a very influential piece in the futuring of trombone technique. Well, certainly Berio wasn't so idealistic to think that a catalogue or a sequence, despite the title, of extraordinary sounds was enough to hold our attention here in the hall. Now, one thing you'll be able to see here in the maltings at Snape Albra, which people won't be able to hear on the radio, is the amazing theatrical element that Byron will be providing in this performance. We're in for a bit of a treat, I can tell you. But certainly there are other things that Berio does to make sure that the piece makes a kind of sense musically as well as just in terms of sonority. What Berio talks about is that he uses a term that sounds a bit dauntingly technical. He talks about harmonic fields. But what he means is that there are distinctive harmonies that act as pivotal points in this piece to which the music keeps returning. How do you create harmonies other than singing and playing notes at the same time? Well, you can create the effect of harmonies of chords with an instrument that can only play one note. One of the most marvellous examples of this, of course, is to be found in the cello suites of Bach. If you listen, the cello is only playing one note at a time, but it certainly adds up to big three-part chords, and you can feel the effect of these harmonies changing as the piece unfolds. to our ghostly mystery cellist at that point. Berio also has a basic harmony, certainly at the beginning of the piece, for the trombone. It's just three notes. Oh, and Byron, could you just play those three notes for us of this chord? Lovely. So those notes, they don't spell out a tonal chord. But if you listen to the beginning of the piece, you'll notice that the music, the sounds, gradually approach these notes. 
that they sounded sporadically amid the texture. And yet, all the time, you can feel the music coming back to these notes. You can hear that chord, as it were, reverberating in the background. And each time the trombone comes back to one of those notes, especially the lowest of those notes, the bass note, you can sense a kind of homecoming. He's very carefully makes sure that we get that harmony planted in our ears at the beginning of that extract and then begins to deviate, to begin to shift and move around it. But each time we come back to it, there is that sense of, aha, yes, we've been here before. Now, this is a kind of anchor, a pointer, so that we know we're on the right kind of tracks. So basically, what Barrow is asking us to do is to do what we do when we listen to any, in inverted commas, normal or traditional or conventional piece, which is to rely on our ears. Now, I, I found this very, very interesting the first time I came across Berio's music, because I'm sure some of you can remember what it was like at modernist concerts, particularly in the days of the Roundhouse in the 60s in London, when you sometimes got the impression that more effort had been put into writing the programme note than writing the piece. And there'd be these incredibly elaborate analyses of the sound you were about to hear, which I would dutifully read and try and memorise, and then listen to something that made absolutely no sense in terms of what I'd just read at all. Berio wants us to be guided by our ears, first of all. It may be difficult to grasp at first hearing, but as Byron has told us, as he's gone on that journey of getting to know this music, it's made more and more sense to him. And I hope this little introduction has maybe provided a few pointers that might be useful for us when we hear Sequence of Five in a moment. But there's also an element of story behind this music. And I introduced this story partly because I think it might help you understand some of the stuff that's going on on the stage and coming out of the trombone. But also, if any of you were laughing a little nervously and wondering whether you should at some of those sounds, it really is all right to laugh. Berio was a man who did enjoy a good laugh. He did enjoy a good joke. And behind this trombone sequenza, there was a story that Berio told about how, when he was a boy, he used to live in an Italian town near to a famous clown called Grok. Now, nobody seems to have taken this clown, Grok, very seriously in the town at the time. Berio remembers when he was very young stealing fruit from Grok's garden. But then, many years later, a slightly more grown-up Berio saw Grok perform, and he was profoundly shaken by the experience, by the power of this man's clowning. This was way beyond dropping trousers or sticking custard pies in people's faces. It was challenging. It was uncomfortable stuff, especially at one point when Grok turned to his audience and spoke just one word. And I won't say what that word is, because that's for Luciano Berrio's Sequenza 5 to reveal in due course. So here then is Luciano Berrio's Sequenza 5 for trombone, played for us by Byron Fulcher. Thank you. 
Sequenza 5 for trombone by Luciano Berio. Played for us there, rather movingly at the end, wasn't it, by Byron Fulcher. Now for a radical change of instrumental colour and indeed of instrument as we turn from the traditional clown of the orchestra to the introvert of the string section, the viola. And here to play Berio's Sequenza 6 for us and to explore it with me is Paul Silverthorne. Right. So now, you see, we have a rather different instrument from the one we've just seen, the clown of the orchestra to what? Well, the viola's been the butt-end of a few jokes in its time, which I won't weary Paul by repeating. I'm sure he probably knows them all anyway. But certainly the viola has tended to be thought of as the introvert of the string section. A lot of the music, wouldn't you say, Paul, for the viola, tends to be of a more melancholic yes, cast. Yes, it, it can be elegiac and pastoral, I think. But I think, I think Berio recognised the fact that if the viola is on its own and there's nothing to compete with it, it suddenly can achieve a great deal more power than is apparent when it's in a group. And I think that's one of the things he set out to demonstrate with this piece. Yes, I wonder if he didn't feel like taking a little revenge on behalf of the viola as well, because the beginning of this piece certainly seems to me you could subtitle The Viola Strikes Back. Well, yes, I, I usually like to be much closer to the front row when I start this piece. <laughs> well, give it <laughs> all on, you've got. And watch them move back. <laughs> Not exactly elegiac. Not exactly <laughs> elegiac, no. This is Sequenza 6, I should have said, the next in the Sequenza sequence. Paul, um, bearing in mind what I quoted Berio was saying earlier about writing for the instrument rather than against it, would you say he's doing that for the viola even in something like that? Well, at the first glance, you'd think that he's actually going totally against its nature. But then again, if it can do it, mm. it's not. And... What he's doing, he's spreading a chord across four strings and making me play it very fast and very loud. And that's only a few steps from something that Bach used to do. Well, we've is... heard a bit of the Bach first cello suite a little earlier yes. on. And well, I set up a nice little comparison with one of Bach's violin partitas and part of the Berio. But as we were rehearsing it, Paul 
did a wonderful segue. Maybe you could just give us the Bach first, which is part of the prelude of the E major partita for solo violin, adapted for viola. So it's the one that starts... Later on, he starts moving the melody against the repeated open string. beautiful thing in rehearsal, which I'd rather like you to repeat, was segueing from that right into the sequenza. And there we are, back in Berry. Absolutely brilliant. And it can't have been a million miles from his mind. It's not it, just a joke. It must have been. Yeah. The other thing that he admitted that he was thinking of, certainly, was the, the Paganini solo violin caprices. Yes. And this word caprice is rather important here. But I, uh, are there any in particular that it reminds you of, of the Paganini caprices? Well, in the, in the fact that there's so much chordal writing, the very mm. first caprice, mm. which, unfortunately, I can't play on this viola, it's too big, mm. so I won't even attempt. Yes. But that is four-part harmony virtually throughout, but spread across the strings in a slightly more graceful manner than Berio chooses to. But there is quite a lot of, I think, what you were saying was really sympathetic viola writing. Oh, yes. I mean, he does... A few examples of that. You've been using the, the word capricious as well. Yes. And I think the passage later on where the music breaks up and fragments much more, and it's much lighter, but with a lot of contrast within it. And he really then plays with the ability of the instrument to play the same note in many different ways. So he'll find he obsesses with a particular pitch, but we play it on different strings in different ways to get completely different timbre. Yes, striking though all that is in, in sequence, there's nothing he asks you to do there that looks particularly ungrateful. No, absolutely not. And it's, 
It's just so full of invention and charm and, and wit. Mm. Yes. I, I love fi that final sound of the, the four-note chord that we've heard so many times, like... <laughs> now he divides it up with two notes pizzicato and two notes hit with the wood. That's an extraordinary effect, isn't it? It's my favourite bit in the whole piece. <laughs> well, it looks, as, it looks great fun to play. This is the point. I mean, there's no way I could even begin to approach it myself. But all the same, you know, for somebody of your technique, there can't be many pieces that are just as enjoyable as this. It's a strange kind of enjoyment, but yes. Yes, <laughs> I know what you mean. I use this word capricious because Berio's stuck a couple of lines of poetry on the score of Sequenza 6. Uh, which in English read, My capricious fury was once your livid calm. My song will be your very slow silence. I love the idea of capricious fury because that does seem to be where it, it starts. Yeah. I like this too. He said it was an uncouth homage to Paganini, mm. which I, wow. I think is a, a great comment. A passage I love is where you slide up and down in chords and it sounds to me almost like a kind of demented Italian tenor. Uh, I wonder if you could give <laughs> us an demonstration of that. But now it's changed my feeling of it, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of that. The mad scene to end all mad scenes, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And it is marvellous, too, the way the piece progresses, though. We get all this fury and we get all this aggression and everything, but then you begin to get senses of something else emerging in the music, too, don't you? I mean, you, you get more and more of these chords and then bursts of something more reflective. Maybe you could, again, yeah. give us an example of that sort of thing. Well, yes. In fact, a lot of this stems from little... When I start off with the very heavy scrubbing at the beginning, every so often there are just little fragments of notes, a sort of a... Those little four-note figures, and they sort of rather take over the, the music towards the middle section. Viola's meditative lyrical side starting to emerge now. In a slightly demented form. In a slightly form, demented yes. form, yes. <laughs> and, and what's rather striking, given <coughs> just how eruptive the beginning of this piece is, is the way that it ends. Because as Berio talks about fury alternating with calm, with songs and silence, all these antitheses, and what emerges at the end is a kind of song, isn't it? I mean, based around chords that are half on open strings, it reminds me a little bit of the, the skeletal fiddler in Sanson's yes. Dance Mac. Car, and, right. and these are, as it were, a pared-down version of the chords we're hearing right at the beginning. So pared it makes musical sense in terms of those yeah. chords we're hearing. These are kind of their distillation.
So how we get from that opening fury to that is basically the story, in a yes. way, behind Sequenza. Exactly. So. Yes, extraordinary, very simple idea. And again, always bringing us back to these same clusters of few notes that, that means that it's held together harmonically as well. Oh, yes. The, yes. The, capricious it may be, but brilliantly held together and constructed. Well, thank you, Paul Silverthorne, for taking us so enlighteningly through this journey of Sequenza 6. And now, the real thing. Over to Paul Silverthorne for Berio's Sequenza 6. Sequenza 6. Thank you, Paul Silverthorne. Well, as I said, Berio's sequenzas have had many imitators, and the vast majority of these have vanished without trace. And I can think of one work by a very different kind of composer that may well show the influence of Sequenza 6 that we've just heard. This is a composer who lived in a very different kind of society from Berio, but who made an effort to find out what all the leading modernists were up to in his time. And this was Dmitry Shostakovich in the old Soviet Union. In 1970, three years after Berio wrote Sequenza VI, Shostakovich produced his strangest and most frightening string quartet, number 13 in B-flat minor. And actually, in B-flat minor, is a bit of a joke. It begins and it ends with a B-flat, just about. But in between, what key it's in is anybody's guess. And certainly, some of the chordal writing in particular in this piece does sound very like Berio, or at least possibly echoing it, particularly in this weird mutant blues section.
the centre of the quartet. Number 13 by Shostakovich. And elsewhere there are all sorts of barrierish effects. Shostakovich asks for serrated chords, jabbing, tapping with the bow on the body of the viola, and the final impossibly high B-flat crescendo that almost becomes a scream by the end of it. Sounds like one particularly fine and lasting echo of Berio's capricious fury. But we've heard the brass, we've heard the strings, it's time for the other traditional component of the orchestra, the woodwind. And could you welcome our clarinetist today, Mark van der Wiel. Okay, the clarinet can certainly be a pretty shrill, angry instrument when it puts its mind to it. You think of the sound of the high clarinet in Mahler, in Shostakovich indeed, or Nielsen's clarinet concerto, which was apparently inspired by or a tribute to a very angry clarinetist indeed. But that's not what one tends to remember in the end, I think, about Sequenza 9A. Why the A? Is this another example of Berio's caprice? No, because there's also a 9B, which is for alto sax, based on more or less the same material, isn't it? But 9A is definitely for the clarinet. It's full of enjoyment of the kind of sounds, and particularly the changes in colour between the different registers of the instrument. The melodic leaps at the beginning make sure that we hear plenty of that lovely low register of the clarinet, sometimes called the chalumeau register, a really chocolatey sound like this. I was going to say the first phrase of the piece, but Mark took issue with me uh, in uh, rehearsal today. I took slight issue with that being a phrase, rather because this piece, which is largely conventionally written, interestingly enough, Berio has a very clear idea what the voice of the instrument is and rather sticks to it. He sticks to the same material. But the clarinet goes through numerous and sometimes very rapid personality changes he marks the tempo at the beginning unstable. And in fact, although you might think what you just heard was the opening phrase of the piece, if I might just play it again, imagine that this is an attempt at three little phrases, but each time you play, it's interrupted by a slightly different character. rather like two more characters coming in and interrupting the first one, as it were. So he's actually thinking of different registers of the clarinet in terms almost of different personalities. Uh, possibly so, yes. Like a, a, an unstable character in some ways, you yes. might say, a dissociated or fragmented character. There's something else that's very striking about that beginning is that very long pause on the final note of that multiple phrase. Um, you have some interesting information about that too. Yes, I think that the piece contains a large number of long-held notes. It's probably the most noticeable feature of the piece when you hear it for the first time. It's because this piece started out as a slightly different work called Chemin Sank, 
written near the beginning of 1980, and as in all of the Chemin series, it's not for instrument alone, but it has a surrounding, in this case, a computer, where the computer would take the clarinet sounds and transform them, probably during these long phrases. But I believe the computer technology was not to Berio's satisfaction, and he abandoned Chemin Sank, leaving the clarinet part alone as this sequenza. But those long pauses, unfortunately for the player, remain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that may have been peak on his part, you were saying, to Berio's displeasure. Berio was not a man to hold back when it came to expressing his displeasure, was he? No, that's true, yes. uh, They're such a striking feature of the piece, and the idea of them arising by default seems very strange. I was reading only the other day about how, when Joyce was writing Finnegan's Wake, he dictated some of it to Samuel Beckett, was almost a kind of amanuensis at the time. At one point in the dictation, somebody knocked on the door, and Joyce said, come in, and then continued with the writing. And, of course, Beckett wrote this down. When Beckett read it back to Joyce, he said, I like that. <laughs> Keep it in. And so sometimes these extraordinary quirks, this kind of serendipity, result in extraordinary effects, don't they? Berio's disgust with the uh, computer technology and its inadequacies of his time results in a really striking piece of music. We've been asking about this question of instruments and writing for them rather than against them. Perhaps this is the truest of all in this case, or it seems to me as a listener that this is written for the clarinet. Would you agree there? Oh, yes, I would. Apart from a very few chords and one flutter-tongued note and a few slight colour changes, there is very little in this piece that in terms of clarinet technique, could not have been written by Mozart. Uh, I'm not talking about the musical style, of course, but the actual clarinet playing is largely very conventional. I'd just like to play, uh, if I might, um, an excerpt from a piece written four years before this sequenza. This is from Berio's large choral and orchestral piece, Coro, where many of the instruments present what you might regard as a characteristic solo. And this is the clarinet solo from the 22nd number of Coro. and so on, which is not a million miles from the material which occurs right at the beginning of the sequenza, even down to the speed, which is marked by Berio identically. Very similar material in a way, and that material remains consistent for the entire piece even though it goes through numerous personality changes. For example, not long after the beginning, it becomes jazz. Yes, I quite take your point. It's rather striking you should mention Mozart, because actually, just listening to that opening of Sequenza 9A, I was struck by the fact that actually 
what he does with the clarinet there is very similar to Mozart, particularly in terms of enjoying the different qualities of the different registers. Mozart, too, likes wide leaps like that, sudden changes of colour in the middle of lines. Part of the slow movement of Mozart's clarinet concerto, Mozart effectively defining the clarinet's character there for generations to come, and certainly up to Luciano Berio's time. Interestingly, Berio heads the score of Sequenza 9a with another bit of verse, which is rather striking here. You are unstable and immobile. That's an interesting combination there, isn't it? Unstable and immobile. The instability of the character and the immobility of those harmonies that it's based on. Yes. And he continues, my fragile fractal, it is you, this fractured form of mind that trembles. It's a very powerful expression. Eduardo Sanguinetti. That's right, yes, yes. And again, as you said, it's actually even marked in the tempo marking, unstable. At the beginning, crotchet equals 60, unstable. Yes. Uh, you were showing me another lovely bit of clarinet writing. Often we get used to an effect sometimes in music where you have grace notes or short notes that are very loud in the middle of the context yes. of quiet music, but he actually asks for the reverse to that, doesn't he? That's true. The idea, of course, of the sequenza refers not just to the fact that this is a sequence of solo pieces, but that each piece itself is based on a sequenza or sequence of notes, which are the centre of the piece, rather than having um, a conventional tonal centre such as A major, D minor, something like that. He bases the piece very, very closely on a sequence, which in this piece is this. Those notes keep recurring very often in, in that order. 
Now, I was giving a class on this piece at the Royal Academy of Music last year, and we were talking about a section where that opening material is transformed into some extremely wild music indeed. This is one of the most aggressive moments in the piece. This music is very loud, but tucked into it are some sudden quiet notes. See if you can hear those. And I was asking the class how much they thought those soft notes should be brought out, emphasised, as it were, even though they're soft. And one of the students in the class said, you have noticed that those are the notes of the sequenza, haven't you? (laughs) Well, uh, none of us had, including me, even though I'd played the piece quite a few times. If I play that to you as the musical equivalent of a photographic negative, so I'll play the loud music softly and the soft notes loudly, you'll see what I mean. And so on, and there they are. Now, the chances of anybody picking that up as a listener when they're played with the real dynamics is extremely low. But it just goes to show how closely into the fabric of the piece that sequence of notes is written. So even though you might not hear them clearly, you'll be aware of the unity that they bring to the piece. Yes, I think the test of that is often when analysis doesn't so much show you things that you couldn't hear, but actually makes you aware that you have been hearing something all the time, but you just haven't registered it consciously. You've, you've noticed it out of the corner of your eye or your ear, as it were. Yeah. A complex and mixed metaphor there, but there's certainly a feeling when you listen to these pieces that they really are very, very tautly constructed. Do you feel with this piece as well that there's a sense of a journey going on here, or do you think that it is immobile, essentially, at the basis? During the piece, it's anything but immobile. And I do think that by the end of the piece, I certainly feel a sense of arrival, that we have been on a journey that's gone somewhere and got somewhere. I think that's one of the things that I was asking at the beginning, why these works have survived when so many others haven't. And I know it's a very simple comment, indeed a naive comment, you might say. But unlike a lot of the music written at that time, you always feel that these pieces end at the right place, don't you? There's a real sense of, yes, that's where it should stop. Yes, that's and true. that in itself is an indication that there's a logic working here, even if you can't consciously understand what it is. Quite so. That which is often the case with great music. Yes, it has to be. And again, possibly a key, along with this sense of exploration, of going on a journey, a journey that may take you from A to B, that may take you back from B to A, or even not move at all, move in a circle. That's the whole delight, I think, of discovery. I mean, how long have you known this piece and been playing it? probably about 15, 16 years. Yes, and you're still discovering things. Oh, yes, oh, yes. It it, it changes every time, actually. Well, I think that's a wonderful cue to hand over to you and to take us on the actual sound voyage of discovery that is Sequenza 9A. So over to Mark van der Wielen 
for this performance of Berio's Sequenza 9A for clarinet. 